This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellas, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Frank Kelly, joining you from Ngunnawal country in the national capital in Parliament House in Canberra. I'm going to be joined soon by Laura Tingle, the chief political correspondent for 7.30, because there is just so much to talk about this week, PK. It's the final sitting week before the May budget. It's been one of the most intense weeks in Parliament that I can remember for a very long time. Lots of legislation, lots of really contentious legislation, so lots of argy-bargy. And in the end, lots of wins racked up for the Albanese government. Maybe Maybe this is the last blush of Labor's honeymoon because we're going to get the budget soon and I think that budget will probably be the end of the uh, of the clover for Labor. PK, they even pulled an all-nighter in the Senate and Parliament House as the opposition muscled up and filibustered on the National Reconstruction Fund for no good reason that I could work out other than to cause some pain to government senators on the way to another government win. But it's a long time since we've seen an all-nighter in this place, isn't it? Yeah, it is, Fran. That's true. Uh, the, the old days where the Senate would sit all night, yes, uh, those days are meant to be over. Labor had a lot of legislation and needed to get it passed before the May budget. Ultimately, um, these are election promises, a lot of them. Uh, they want to fulfil those promises. The Greens clearly, you know, had done deals on a couple of different things with them, which we'll talk about. So they made the decision to sit and get it done, um, which I think people would broadly probably be sympathetic to that a government gets its work done. We're recording this on a Thursday morning and today is their last sitting day before that budget that you just talked about. And the government still has important legislation to get through, including the legislation to put forward the wording of the constitutional change around the voice. Recording this on a Thursday morning, uh, Mark Dreyfus just stood up in the lower house introducing the bill Peter Dutton wasn't there. Uh, There's a lot of criticism. There was empty, empty seats on the other side. We've also got a by-election on the weekend and the opposition has been keen not to talk about anything but cost of living and not get itself kind of deciding on some of these other issues, not wanting to disrupt its chances of winning in Aston. I think it's a lot to do with politics, but either way, you say poor, not a good look not to be there at all. But let's get back to the mantra of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Fran, he said when he was elected, he promised not to waste a day in government. And I reckon he's sticking to that mantra, at least. You might not agree with everything he does, but they are absolutely full throttle on that and trying to get everything done. Let's just get to some key victories. During that marathon sitting, they passed the National Reconstruction Fund Bill, or the NRF as it's called. That's the fund that aims to promote manufacturing in Australia. Again, they did that deal with the Greens, which we've talked about. That's done. They also did a deal, um, and that's set to pass, the Emissions Safeguard Mechanism, which will force the country's 215 biggest emitters to cut their emissions by close to 5% every year. 
allowing the government to meet that ambition of 43% by 2030 reduction. Now, the Greens agreed to back Labor's bill with a few changes, but not the major concessions of no new coal and gas, that hard and fast rule. They didn't get that, but they got some other things. We're going to get to that with Laura shortly because it's been contested. Who won? Who was the loser? I actually see it as a bit more complex. Fran, how do you see it? Who came out on top of these negotiations? Oh, well, it, it is hard to tell because there's a lot of detail in this. And, you know, both sides want to tell a different version of this story, as is, you know, this was a win for us. The Greens leader, Adam Bant, did the deal in the end. He didn't, as you said, he didn't get everything he wanted. He didn't get that no new coal or gas, but he did get... One considerable concession, which was to set an absolute cap on the level of emissions from those 215 big emitters. This makes things a lot more difficult for the government. And as I mentioned, coal and gas were complaining about it. But don't think there was all sweetness and light here just because they got an agreement. Adam Van had done this deal with the climate minister, Chris Bowen, and apart from claiming a win, he also said this. Negotiating with Labor is like negotiating with the political wing of the coal and gas corporations. Um, Labor seems more afraid of the coal and gas corporations than climate collapse. Ouch. So Adam Bant really muscling up to Labor there, even as he announced he'd done a deal with the Labor government to cut emissions. Labor, meanwhile, was also into taking pot shots. It's not bothering about the Greens right now, though. It's set its sights firmly on the opposition. Here's the Prime Minister. It says a lot about the state of the Liberal and National parties in 2023 that in spite of the election result, they have excluded themselves from any participation. They're the observers of Australian politics rather than the participants. Now, we've heard that a few times this week from the Prime Minister, every chance it gets actually, PK, and I think it is in the context of we are just days ahead of the Aston by-election where Labor and Liberal effectively come head-to-head. So Peter Dutton and Anthony Albanese taking any chance they can get to inflict pain on each other ahead of Saturday's vote because there's a fair bit of stake for them personally in their leadership positions. Not that I'm saying either of them under threat or anything, but these are early days and these kind of moments, you know, can make a big psychological difference, can't they? Oh, huge. And for Peter Dutton, this is his first test as the opposition leader and also first test for the government about, you know, how people are feeling. We're going to get into that with Laura Tingle in a moment, but let's just get to another key theme, cost of living. It's all linked. This week we saw the latest inflation figures and inflation went down again twice in a row. But nevertheless, it's still really high, 6.8%. This is the second month that may have fallen. But if you look at some of the figures, Fran, you know, some of these basics, the inflation's incredibly high. So people's... Food and housing, basics and housing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not things that you can say, "Eh, I'm not going to have any bread anymore if you're feeding your family. You try not to buy loaves of bread. I'm not going to pay my rent because it's just gone up 10%. Yeah. Totally. These are not things you can make choices on. They're not in the fancy holidays. It's something very serious. So, Fran, obviously because it has gone down, though, twice in a row in terms of the headline figure, means that a pause of the RBA in lifting rates next week is possible. We saw Mm. the government hinting that it will support another lift in the minimum wage. When it makes its submission, it will be released on Friday. We're recording this on a Thursday. But essentially, the Treasurer told me today he doesn't think that the minimum wage workers should go backwards, which is basically what they said 
during the election campaign, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly what they said. And, and Tony Burke, Industrial Relations Minister, Employment Minister on your show in the week too, you know, he gave a big hint. He said our values haven't changed. So Labor didn't put a figure in their submission to the Fair Work Commission last time and they won't put one in this time, but they're signalling minimum wage workers should get a rise perhaps not as high as 6.8%, but close to. I think Labor will make it clear in their submission that they don't necessarily expect this to be handed to people on award wages, like it could just be those on the very minimum wage, something like $21. That seems to be the signalling coming from Labor. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see, and we'll see soon enough, PK. Fran, should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent for 7.30. Welcome back to the party room. Oh, it's lovely to be here. And, you know, thanks for the daiquiri. (laughs) Daiquiris are always on the house, but we really do thank you because it's been so busy this week. So much legislation. The government's been going full steam ahead, trying to get legislation through with quite a degree of success, I have to say. PK and I touched on earlier the safeguard mechanism, getting that through with the Greens. Adam Bant, remember this election way back last year, dubbed this a green slide. So he came in claiming a lot of bargaining power. He claimed a mandate. In the end, he ended up giving some ground. He didn't get that you know, ban on any new coal and gas. Laura, have you been able to have a get a good sense of this? Which party really won in this negotiation? Did the Greens end up giving a lot of ground, or did the government concede? Look, I'm, I'm going to say uh, it was a it was a draw. It was a, it was a <laughs> useful draw. They were never going to get no new coal and gas. I mean, which was of course a broader mm. idea, not just covering the safeguard mechanism. Mechanism. It was to, in general, but. Um, you're sort of seeing a slow motion response now to what they've done, which is basically saying, well, the, the cost of offsetting emissions or finding new technology is going to be so large, it is going to be prohibitive on a lot of these existing projects that are sort of on the drawing board or, or even ones that are in place, but they were going to open up new fields and things. So, so de facto, it might be no facto, new coal and gas. It's no new coal and gas, but it means the government doesn't have to say that. Not only does the government not have to say that politically, but in a regulatory sense, it doesn't have to go there um, because that would have, you know, been very problematic. I think so. I think it's actually, you know, a, a ye olden days good compromise. I said before on the podcast, I think this Greens thing of no new coal and gas was starting to really take on. I think people mm. sort of scratching their head go, well, yeah, how can we? But it might be a relief for the government to have a regulatory framework that knocks it out rather than them having to. Well, of course, the Greens say that one of the things about this is if any new projects are developed, it'll basically be on the heads of uh, Tanya Plibersek as Environment Minister and Chris Bowen as Climate Change Minister. Now, that's That's sort of true and sort of not true, but it's certainly the case that it's given the government the capacity to sort of say, look, we've done all of these things, the Greens have endorsed it, so it sort of kills off the, you know, the Greens will always want more, but they've sort of been able to look reasonable and like they're doing something and Mm. they'll be able to say, look, we've locked all of this stuff in. At the same time, they haven't actually had to go too hard. They've, They've also you know, balanced the sort of stick here with um, the carrot of these extra funds that they provided for people to transition, uh, the industries that are hard to transition out of uh, out of carbon. So, I mean, I think it's it's a good outcome for the government in that regard, in that regard because it's been able to claim, shall we say, the policy high ground uh, on this stuff 
um, but without sort of you know going completely feral and looking yeah. like they're rolling over to the greens. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's really um, you're right. A draw is actually a great way to describe it. Is this a new era? for the Greens under the leadership of Adam Bant. He has now twice got his party over the line to vote for government legislation while making his points. Has he turned out to be one of the most effective leaders of the Greens party? I mean, he's a really pragmatic leader, it seems. I think I think it certainly is. Uh, I mean, the new era, if you like, has been coming for a while. Um, and, of course, there's been a bit of a change of personnel as well, which I suspect has probably helped... Adam Bant, but I think he has emerged as a very effective leader given, I don't know what you guys heard, but I, I heard at least four or possibly five Greens opposed this decision in the party room. So I think there was a fairly willing discussion in the party room. Yeah, um, there are a lot of people who weren't all that happy about it. Uh, so it's perilous times for Adam Bant as well um, in the sense that the Greens do have to continue to maintain a sort of sense of uh, differentiation with with Labor on on issues, and I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing them dig in so hard on the housing fund, uh, which has also been debated this week, and is one of the few things that the government hasn't uh, got up and is not expected to get up now before the budget. Famous last words, um, but uh, I think he's got a balancing act to keep the party sort of together, and because uh, that there are splits in it still on this subject, um, but he's going to have to give them a win on something. Laura, what about Peter Dutton? Because the opposition has counted themselves out of this and a whole whole lot of other big policy issues just flat out no. Despite the fact that they lost so many seats at the last election to candidates, you know, let's call them the Teals, their number one thing was stronger action on climate change. So it's hard to understand the opposition's line of attack now, which is that, you know, this deal's making it harder for coal and gas and other industries like cement, so that's going to push up costs for consumers. It seems counterintuitive to dig in, you know, against cutting emissions. What is he doing? Good question. <laughs> uh, look, um, I mean, there are a couple of ways of looking at this. Most of them aren't particularly attractive. Uh, but I think this parliamentary fortnight has been a real watershed or turning point or inflection point for the coalition's political tactics you know, because, mm. you know, they've gone in, as you say, so hard on this emissions safeguard mechanism, dealing themselves out, but then through the week filibustering to stop it getting through the Senate, even though they know that it will eventually do so. It seems such a strange thing to die in a ditch for when it's basically a, an amendment of their own policy measure for a start. Now, people out in, um, in Voterland probably don't give a bugger about that either way, but nonetheless, so the, there's sort of that issue. And, and it also just, as you say, the politics have shifted so far against this position that they're just left looking like dinosaurs. Now, the only possible politics in it is what we've seen in the House question time this week, which is they just keep relentlessly going on energy prices. Now, yes. cost of living. Cost of yep. living. And and that's fine. Uh, but to me, it's very 2010. Tony Abbott was able to just run the sort of you know, no carbon tax line. Um, I think if you look at the sort of trajectory of when coal-fired uh, coal power stations are closing down, which might be sort of another argument, oh, well, we can win some of those seats back. Um, you know, it doesn't sort of make sense in that world when you've got the government, I think, 
possibly foreshadowed by Michelle O'Neill at the press club this week talking about this transition authority where you try to help all of the communities affected by um, decarbonisation to um, move to new technologies. That'll give the government um, uh, an, an, al- an alibi if they follow that, and I can't believe that Michelle. That's O'Neill, the ACTU. Yeah, I can't believe that they won't fo- they won't be yeah. sort of announcing something like that, given the ACTU's uh, flagged it um, this week. So I, I just find it perplexing, and I think particularly given what we saw in New South Wales, you know, the, the results are a little bit different. But when you think they're facing an existential threat, where the areas where they thought you know, they, they had the genesis of their comeback federally in outer uh, suburban seats, they abandoned uh, the coalition in New South Wales. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, and, and we've got to wait to see what happens in Aston this weekend, of course. Yeah, we're going to go to Aston in a little while, but I just want to take you back to this watershed moment, this turning point, inflection point, what may have happened in the last couple of weeks. Peter Dutton wasn't there, for instance, when Mark Dreyfus introduced the legislation for the voice to parliament that's been widely interpreted as a rebuke. What's your analysis of what's going on here? Clearly they're looking to land on a no position, but how how is that in the frame of re-energising the party, trying to think about the lessons of the election? What's he doing? Well, once again, you know, you've got this weird thing where they're sort of basically sort of saying no without saying no at the moment, um, but trying to put off whether, whether they'll say no or not until after Aston. And, of course, he's not really... I mean, he's gone down and done press conferences in Aston but hasn't actually campaigned, I think you can argue, in Aston. Now, I don't know how much that says about his lack of popularity with people, but the the ambiguity on The Voice, I think, reflects his really big dilemma now, which is, you know, the party he leads is now basically the LNP in Queensland plus a a few random people around the country. Mm. Plus he's got these completely uh, dysfunctional party organisations in um, Victoria and New South Wales and WA. You know, we always tend to ascribe to politicians a a cunning plan. I'm not sure that he has one. I just... he doesn't have much room to move, perhaps, given the makeup of his party. Right? He doesn't have much room to move, and I, I just, I'm, I'm not at all persuaded he does have a cunning plan. To me, it's, it feels like he's just di- digging into the, um, the strategy box that's been used for the last decade, which is no longer appropriate to the nature of the politics. Just staying with the voice for a, a bit longer, because as, yeah, as PK said, Peter Dutton sort of kept out of it because he wants the focus to be on cost of living, but nevertheless, the issue was there, uh, given that big press conference by the Prime Minister. And what we got was the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians and long-time supporter and advocate The Voice, Julian Lisa, asking questions like this one. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister for Indigenous Australians. The proposed voice to Parliament will have a constitutional function of making representations to the Executive Government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Minister, the Reserve Bank of Australia is part of the Executive Government and interest rates affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as they do all Australians. Will the Reserve Bank need to consult with The Voice before making a decision on interest rates? Will the Reserve Bank need to consult with The Voice? We've got this whole string of questions, mm. several of them from Julian Lisa. You know, will, will the emission safeguard be referred to The Voice? On and on it went. Mm. Now, some of them might be valid questions and some of them <laughs> not, I would think, like that one. And I was confounded by the fact that it was Julian Lisa asking these questions because he has been uh, a member of the uh, coalition mm. who has been most instrumental in leading the community consultations that have led us to mm. the sort of the overall 
parameters of the voice we've ended up with and a long-time supporter of the voice. So what are they doing here? Basically, they are feeding this uncertainty, dressed up as legal uncertainty. I think it's pretty cynical. Uh, You know, there are always legal questions about all of these things, but, you know, are they strong enough to to be sort of pursuing a question like, is it going to affect the Reserve Bank? Now, you can sort of sort of say, oh, well, you know, it's reasonable enough, it's executive government, but it isn't actually. I mean, it, It's a it, bad faith kind of move, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it means that uh, Peter Dutton's, you know, keeping his hands sort of clean. It makes it sort of look legitimate to get Julian Lisa to ask the questions. Uh, but most questions in Question Time are about attacking the government. This isn't about attacking the government. This is about attacking the idea of the uh, of the referendum and the voice. And it's about using Parliament to just undermine that sort of sense of any certainty people have who might be wavering or who, you know, might have already decided to vote no to go, oh, well, you know, maybe there is a problem here. And to be fair, I think the yes case and the government are just doing an appalling job of batting this stuff back. Yeah, I do too. I, I think they're really going to be in trouble unless they can smarten up on that. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm interested that it's Julian Lisa who is asking this. Yeah. And and what we get in response to that is Noel Pearson, for instance, being very critical of Julian Lisa and very disappointed because he's been working with him and talking with him about this for a decade, but we're still not getting some mm. of the answers that I think some of the yeah. population Nobody are a little bit concerned about. Nobody cares whether Noel Pearson is disappointed in Julian Lisa, what they want to know from Noel Pearson, and everybody else who's advocating is why we have to vote yes, why the executive government stuff is, is not important. a problem. Um, and look, I, I think most people would have no idea what executive government yeah. is. You know, totally. they've, got, they've got no idea what that means and, you know, why should they? You know, just sort of just saying to it, look, all this means is that uh, if there's a policy idea that's floating about, you know, we ask the body called The Voice, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Before it gets to Cabinet, before it gets to Parliament, um, so that they've had their say. I mean, I, I still think um, Peter Malinowskis, the South Australian Premier, I thought was really fascinating on this in Adelaide a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, they've just passed their state legislation on The Voice. He said, look, it's not about vetoing anything. It's about them having a vehicle to formally put in their views about things based on their experience. And we can either say, yep, good idea, or say, look, you know what, that's not a good idea. You know, this is why. But it gives us pause to stop and think about what we're doing. And, I mean, that's the intent of it. Now... You know, there, there are all sorts of uh, alarm alarm bells that might ring about, you know, what, what this could potentially become. But the powers over how the voice works are completely controlled by the parliament. And if, if it turns out that they can't get rid of the voice as a con- constitutional responsibility and... and um, they can curtail an, it, idea, right? They can curtail it, which is what I find sort of, you know, very yeah. disingenuous about a lot of this discussion. Look, mention Aston by-election. We're recording this Thursday morning. People might be listening to this and already know the result, right? So this Mm. is the way the podcast land works. But clearly this is a really important contest for both of the leaders. How has the Aston by-election affected the behaviour of the opposition leader? I mean, we thought we'd get a position on him, for instance, on The Voice, but that's all been put away to after Aston. It's all about Aston, the way he's behaved in question time as a leader. All of it is, is all about Aston, right? Yeah, I think a lot of it's been about Aston. I don't. I'm not sure that it's been all that overwhelmingly about Aston. I mean, the fact that he didn't ask any questions on Monday about the safeguard mechanism, um, you know, that 
that to me sort of has a bit of Aston feel to mm, it. It did. Um, uh, but it's sort of such a funny electorate, you know, in, in the sense that, once again, it's one of these outer Melbourne seats. Will the whole cost of living stuff play out out there? I'm not sure. There's a very large um, Chinese community out in Aston and uh, I think, you know, some of the language around what they've been talking about in terms of foreign policy and things has also been, you know, driven by that. Um, I, th- I think it's it's really messy. There's not a protest vote yet for the government, I don't think, floating about. It's a bit too early. So what do you think is going to happen? I mean, it, you know, normally the coalition, the opposition would retain this seat, you would think, under normal circumstances. Yeah. Do you think that's how are both sides feeling about this and their chances? My gut instinct would be that uh, there would be a reduced vote for the coalition. I'm not sure that they'd actually lose the seat, but that there would be a reduced vote for the coalition just given the circumstances uh, of the of Alan Tudge leaving, the candidate not being a local, all of those things. And, you know, there's 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 not a sense of a protest vote around for the government yet, I don't think. Okay, so that's that's the politics. We talked about the, the enormous amount of work that's going on in the parliament and the government's success, really, in many of it, like getting its safeguards and getting its reconstruction fund through. But there was an unusual sticking point. Well, I thought it was. I didn't expect it. And that's on the housing fund. They've had to shelve it because they couldn't get the Greens or the crossbench over the line. The government claims the scheme would build 30,000 homes for need Australians over five years. Now, the Greens really doubled down on this. They want freeze on rents, all of this. Why wasn't a deal arrived at? Is this the Greens trying to say, hey, we can be tough guys on some things? Well, I think so, without doubt. Um, they they do want to be tough. Um, plus, you've got the crossbenchers, you know, very exercised about this. And, you know, let's face it, housing is absolutely a you know, a hot button issue for everybody Mm. um, if you've been trying to rent something or if your mortgage is going up. So it's an issue that does galvanise people and that they they really do notice. It's sort of a bit of a no-brainer for the um, Greens and the crossbench, but I think they also legitimately believe that more should be done. Now, the sorts of amounts of money they're talking about, which is, you know, Five billion a year instead of five hundred million a year. Well, that's not going to happen. But um, I think there's probably going to have to be, even if they don't put more money into into the, this fund, um, there's going to have to be some sort of combination of measures to provide some sort of housing relief in the budget. I agree with you. I mean, money is tight in this budget. Um, I think if they had a lazy few bill hanging around, they would happily have slipped it on the table into another housing Mm. policy to be seen to be doing something on housing because it's a crisis out there, that's for sure. But Mm. I just don't know that they have those billions at the moment. Well, well, they might not have the billions, um, but there are other things you can do, you know, whether it's um, reworking rental assistance. You know, they've got to talk to the states about housing and homelessness in the next couple of months, so there might be something they can do with this. Laura, just a quick one before we go. The New South Wales election result on the weekend, we've talked a bit about that, but I'm wondering what you make of the fact that the teal wave didn't eventuate at that state election. Now, those who um, helped back the teals say, oh, well, we took a fair bit of gloss off some of them in their safe seats. I think they won one one teal um, candidate got up. I mean, what do you think that means? If you think back to the federal election, you know, that there was a lot of you know, I think personal animosity to um, to Scott Morrison and to where he had taken the Liberal Party in um, in the Teal wave. You know, in, in a sort of negative sense, and there were these issues. It wasn't just climate, but you know, treatment of women, all these other things, 
which he was so, so, such a poster boy for, you know, the, the bad side of it. Whereas I think Dominic Perrottet and Matt Keane, between them, had sort of, as you say, softened the climate uh, message. Oh, for sure. Quite Were, determinedly. Yeah, weren't weren't basically offensive all the time, you know, which is quite nice. I just sort of think that the Teal vote is partially a protest vote and it's partially a trans, transformation of politics, but I suspect people didn't feel that great need for the transformation here and probably also just thought, well, it's time for a change, um, you know, more broadly anyway, so let's let's try to make sure we lock in that sort of change. Can I say that when you come in and drink these expensive daiquiris with us, (laughs) cost of living crisis, can't afford the daiquiris anymore, but we do love talking to you. Laura, thanks for coming in. Always a pleasure, my dear. Yeah, it's lucky for me you like the non-alcoholic beers. Laura, thank you. Thanks, Van. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. This week's question comes from Helen from beautiful Tasmania. After the New South Wales election on the weekend, we have the last remaining Liberal government in the country. My question is, has this situation ever occurred before in Australia of a single party being in government in all states and territories and federally bar one? Um, Well, that's a good question. We did do some checking to make sure we got it right. Always um, always wise. (laughs) Always wise. We understand that Labor's been in office in all nine of the jurisdictions for a few months between late November 2007 and September 2008. So that was um, Kevin Rudd's, you know, golden period, really, wasn't it? When he was elected on such a a Rudd slide, the the states were all federal. I do remember a time, PK, back when... um, Paul Keating was treasurer and he talked about, he and Bob Hawke talked about a period of cooperative federalism. And I think then they might have had Carmen Lawrence in the in the West and Joan Kerner in Victoria, John Bannon in South Australia, maybe even Wayne Goss in Queensland. So there was a lot of Labor weight around that coag table, but obviously not in quite this number. So it, it is rare for it to happen. It doesn't always mean it makes a smoother ride for a federal government either, because some of the Labor states can get very bolshy when they're around that national cabinet table, can't they? Oh, yeah. It's not at all like, you know, kumbaya, because they have to advocate for their own patch, don't they? So if you're a New South Wales government, if you're the Victorian government, you know, you, 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 you muscle up for your state. So it's not always kumbaya. Look, it has happened before. It is interesting that John Howard, the former Prime Minister, and, you know, Liberal legend in, in their ranks. When the New South Wales election was lost for the Liberals, uh, it swings and roundabouts, you know, I don't think this is going to last. And, and he really bases that on his own experience where they mm. were all decimated and, look, they rose again. I've spoken to very, very significant Liberals who say, while they respect John Howard, they think that maybe there is something broader and more structural going on. How did John Howard keep winning that? You know those elections until he did lose baby boomers. Look at the baby boomers on the electoral roll; they're in decline. Millennials are up. There is a bigger story happening in the electorate, and the ability of the Liberal Party to connect with that millennial base is is increasingly an issue as housing becomes an issue. Uh, it is column A, partly swings and roundabouts, but it's not entirely the story, I don't think. No, I think that's true, probably true, um, and that's why everyone's watching Peter Dutton and looking at what he's not saying on climate, for instance, and sort of scratching their heads. But I also think that, you know, both major parties 
a need to be mindful of this change because the millennials are not necessarily gravitating to either major parties. We are seeing in some states more, you know, um, bigger crossbenches and governments having to do, state governments having to do negotiations with crossbenches to stay in power. So that is happening and has been happening in places like South Australia for, for quite some time. But there was also another adage talking about John Howard, who he used to say that, you know, often it can work in a federal government's favour because if all the states are Labor or if your state le- government's Labor, there comes into your the, the psyche at some point, oh, maybe we should take our insurance against the federal government and vote the other side in at a state level so we get a bit of both and get a bit of leverage. But, you know, we certainly are seeing a shift in the demographic and is that being a permanent shift into the electorate being more sort of left-leaning? Well, maybe. Maybe. We'll we'll end with maybe. That gives us, we're hedging. Send us your (laughs) questions. Keep doing it. We love getting your questions. Uh, You can send them in voice note form. You can send them on social media or you can email us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. I'm particularly fond of the voice ones, can I say? So I'd love you to send some of those in. Remember, you can follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's it from The Party Room this week. We'll be back next week, even though it's Easter. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.